This morning we continue our study of Matthew's Gospel, and our scripture comes to us from Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13 to 28. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, Jesus asked. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You're the Christ, Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. From that time on, Jesus Christ began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, that he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the thoughts of God, merely human thought. And Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. For what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here today will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. This morning, as we consider this text, I want us to be encouraged by three themes that come through from it. The first being that it's the Father that reveals the Son's identity. Secondly, the Son gives us a new identity. And lastly, the Spirit empowers life from our new identity. Or perhaps more accurately, our true identity. So first, the Father reveals the Son's identity. This begins uh, in verse 13, sort of the headwaters of the Jordan River, the area of Caesarea Philippi. In this area, there was a lot of temples and idols made to various deities scattered all over the place. Uh, Syrian Baal worship was prevalent. There was a uh, large hill in the region with a deep cavern, and then the cavern was, you know, historically understood by many of the ancients to be the birthplace of the great god Pan, the god of nature. And uh, also in Caesarea Philippi, there was a huge white marble temple in the ancient world that was built to the godhead of Caesar. And it's like Jesus deliberately picked this location of all the gods and all the deities to say, who do you say that I am? Against the backdrop of all uh, thought of the day as to who the gods were. 
And not only that, but this is a region where Jesus opened up a lot of blind eyes and did miracles. And so it's fitting that he would pick this location to open Peter's blind eyes. By extension, open all of our blind eyes to his identity, to who he really is. Verse 15, Jesus famously says, Yes, yes, they say I'm a prophet. They say I'm another teacher. They say I'm the reincarnation of these various ministers. But who do you say that I am? And that question is a question we all have to answer. C.S. Lewis, famously, was a, um, an atheist uh, writer at Oxford, comes to Saving Faith and has famously done lots of Christian apologetics and writings. And Lewis said it this way, we all have to answer the question of who Jesus is. Was, it, was he a liar? Was he a lunatic? Or is he the Lord? And that's how he framed it. I was at the University of Waterloo this last Friday night. Uh, some of you were there, some of the students, and we were speaking on the subject of Jesus, talking about him being the resurrection and the life. And we dipped our toe into this a little bit. Who was Jesus? Some of the students had invited friends from on campus who don't share Christian faith, and we were kind of poking around at that. Is he an ancient hippie? Was he just a good guy? Was it a legend that grew over long periods of time? That's not what history teaches us. If you are in school studying history or sociology and you look at what happened in the ancient Greco-Roman world... It causes historians and sociologists to really hit pause because thousands upon thousands of people left their worldview overnight and were worshiping Jesus. It wasn't a legend that graduated over time. It was the the radical uh, reaction to the resurrection that caused these things. Jesus is provoking us to answer the question. Am I just a good guy that said some nice things and just adopt my values for caring for the underdog and the poor? Or am I the Son of God? Am I who I might claim to be? So Peter answers and he says, you're the Christ. The Christ in the Greek is Christos. It means Messiah. And that's important because as moderns, we might think like Jesus Christ is, that was Jesus' last name. Hi, I'm Jesus Christ. It's my mom, Mary Christ. It's my brother, James Christ. We're all family of Christ. It's not, it, it means Messiah, the, the anointed one, the chosen one, the prophesied one. He's, he's saying he's the fulfillment of all the Jewish scriptures. From the beginning. It's a bold claim. And, and Peter gets it now. Well, for a few minutes he gets it anyway. He gets who he is, but he doesn't get the mission part. And he says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah, the promised one, the son of the living God. And then Jesus uses mega sovereignty language. And he says, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. Human reason, human intellect. Um, God revealed this to you. It's humbling language, sobering language. Maybe it's provocative language because Jesus says that you can't know who I am unless the Father reveals it to you. And it's intended to be extremely humbling. It doesn't mean that we don't have any agency. It doesn't mean that humans don't, you know, we're just robots. The Greeks had an understanding of fate, right? And in the Greek understanding of fate, It was a cold force that just moved to the cosmos and humans didn't have any choice in the matter about how things played out. That's how the Greeks understood fate. Jesus, in contrast to that, uses strong sovereignty language. But what the scriptures reveal about God's sovereignty, unlike fate, is that it's not a cold, impersonal force where humans have no agency. God's sovereignty is loving fatherly engagement whereby he's intimately, constantly connected to his creation, sovereignly moving through his creation, using his divinity, using his sovereignty to draw us to trust in him, to use our agency, 
to believe in him and to trust in him. The caveat here is that none of us just get there by our own human reason. So it's very humbling. Faith isn't just an intellectual ascent and and muscle that we exercise. It's a gift from God. And yet, as Christians, we don't check our brains at the door in order to believe in Christian faith. Faith and reason are friends. Faith and science are friends. It is to the degree that we look deeply into the wonder and the majesty of God that as we go about our business of vocation, doing things like sociology, history, and science, that we begin to see the fingerprints of God absolutely everywhere. And so he uses this language of sovereignty that provokes us to see that it is the Father and the Father alone that reveals the Son's identity. And in verse 27, Jesus makes a statement. He says that in, that, in his sovereignty, he'll return and he will reward everyone for the things that they've done. And at first glance, that just seems like be a good person because that's what God's up to rewarding. He'll reward you if you're good. Good people get good things. Bad people get bad things. That's Christianity. No. The good that we have done, the ultimate good, if you take the totality of everything that Jesus has said, he said in the book of John, for example, this is the work that you must do. Believe in the one whom God had sent. The reward for the works that we have done, all of the good works that we are doing, are flowing from... the one work that we're called to do, which is to trust in Jesus and who he actually is and in his identity. Because there are a lot of people who are working for the good of our city and they're doing wonderful, beautiful things. And they're atheists and agnostics and Muslims and Hindus. So this isn't, this isn't salvation by morality. I'm not doing away with morality because in fact, if you love God and the Father reveals the Son and you're united to the, Spirit and, uh, sorry, united to the Son and indwelt by the Spirit... The result of that is that you will desire to resemble the Father. We will very much be people of integrity and ethics and morality, no doubt. Generosity and grace and kindness. Welcoming and winsome towards all the people who don't agree with any of our worldview. This will be who we are. Secure in who we are in our own identity. Because firstly, the Father is revealed. The Son's identity. And then in verse 28. Sorry, last thing I'll say about this rewards is that, again... If you just look at it at first glance, how oh, rewards for what we have done, it's confusing. But when you look at how the apostles use the language after the resurrection of Jesus, they are continually using phrases like inheritance. That the reward is like an inheritance, and inheritances are for children. And so the whole way to understand that if death is not final, and that one day I'll be raised and this world will be restored, and we will all, those united to Christ, Enjoy the glory of God as we cultivate civilization to God's glory using all of our gifts in the new earth. Okay, if this is what God is up to, then this reward is an inheritance. It's something that's coming to the kids. So we're not given any specific detail because this specific detail isn't relevant. It's all connected inseparably to this idea of identity. And what gives a person more security than having assurance in their identity? A great question, and I'm getting ahead of myself, is who tells you your identity? So, the Father reveals the Son's identity, and then Jesus makes a comment in verse 28 where he says, you'll see me coming in my kingdom, and some of you aren't even going to taste death until you see that. And we're like, well, that is cryptic. 
Well, first of all, spoiler alert, in the next chapter, next Sunday sermon, part of this happens because there's a transfiguration that happens on the mountain. It's divine and it's spectacular and I'm not going to get into it. So you can come back next Sunday and hear all about that. But in the grander sense of seeing Christ come into his kingdom, you see, they, they did see that before they tasted death when Christ was on the cross. Because the way in which he came into his kingdom was unlike the way any other person of power came into their kingdom. He's the king who stoops, the king who dies, the king who serves, the Lord of rest. And they observed him coming into his kingdom when they saw him go to the cross in great love and grace for humanity and the creation that God loves. And they saw him coming into his kingdom in the empty tomb and the resurrection when the resurrected Christ appeared, not only to the twelve disciples, but to hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds. And then they saw him coming into his kingdom as he ascended to the Father. And so they did see this. The Father reveals the Son's identity. Let's move on. The Son gives us new identity. Jesus says in verse 18 to Simon, whose name means Reed, You are Peter. Gives him a new identity. Gives him a new name. You are Petros. And it's a play on words because rock is Petra. So he says, you are Petros. And on this Petra, I will build my church. You're a chip off the old rock, Peter. And what is Jesus doing? But he is speaking. He's giving him a, a new identity. Peter and rock come from the same root word in Aramaic, as I just uh, revealed. And so Jesus then uses this word and he speaks to Jesus uh, speaks to Peter in this way. And then it's the first time that this word church shows up in the New Testament. Jesus says, I'm going to build my church on this. And it's the word ecclesia, which was not a new term. They weren't all like, what is this church you speak of? Will there be rows of seating? And then a song and then a prayer and then another song. And then like, what will the liturgy be? No, that, because ecclesia was a political term that meant a group of people that are getting together the gathering of those who are making decisions. The gathering together of those who are ascribed to a particular way of life, a particular ideology. So when Jesus talks about his church, he uses a familiar term, but he, he reworks the whole thing to say, I'm actually giving you a new identity for how you gather. And he puts himself at the center of all of this. It's the revelation of me and of who I am. This is going to be a game changer on how we understand what it is to be human and how you will approach your vocation on Monday and how you will approach the trials and the challenges and the sorrows and the disappointments of life. It's going to be a game changer for you. It's going to be a game changer for the way that you appreciate the joys and the beauties and the gifts and the things to be celebrated in life. If you are the ecclesia, you will actually be liberated and free in your identity to enjoy good things without giving them a coronation ceremony and worshiping them like they're the ultimate thing. This is tremendously meaningful that he chooses that political language to describe his church. It's not because it's political in a partisan sense. It's political in a... Christianity is unavoidably political in the sense that it means you have a king and you have people and a nation and a way and laws that govern our lives. And the laws are there to guide us into flourishing and joy. And so he gives all of this, uh, even, in, even in just that one word, it's a re- redefinition of what it means to gather, to gather together with Jesus at the center. And he says this about Peter. Unqualified Peter, fisherman Peter, cussing Peter, sinful Peter. We forgot the bagels, Peter. This is the guy. It's like, I'm going to build, I'm going to build my church. And like, we know, we, we know where this whole story goes. Peter does, Peter does things that are 
magnificently beyond his qualifications because the Spirit of God that indwells Peter gives him a new identity. And by new identity, I mean true identity, where he is so comfortable and confident in being a child of God, he's, he's now fearless because you can't kill somebody who's already dead and been united to Christ. So there's a fearlessness that comes with the Son giving us a new identity. But that fearlessness also looks like Jesus. Jesus was fearless, but the fearlessness didn't look like angry bravado. It looked like love and care and tremendous compassion. Glorious and just amazing. The Father reveals the Son, and then the Son, the Father reveals the Son's identity, and then Jesus gives us our identity. And um, think about the conversations of our lifetime around identity. How do you get it? How do we get it? We can work for it. We can strive to achieve it. Strive to achieve it through your school, your resume, the letters after your name, athleticism, the arts, being brilliant at business, making a lot of money, being online, having a personal brand, having lots of followers, getting them tweets and likes, retweets and likes. Lots of ways to garner identity. Some of the largest conversations around identity, at least in our time, are around politics and sexuality. What tribe are you with, man? That defines you as a person. Say the right thing in the right context in the right way. Say the wrong thing in the wrong place. Cancel. Not really, though. Nobody's ever, nobody's ever really canceled. They just get more famous and more rich off of being canceled. So it's a, there's, like, there's, like, there's real life, and then there's what's going on in your phone. And then when you stop looking at what's going on in your phone and look at real life, you're like, hmm, there seems to be a disconnect here. I think the emperor has no clothes. So how do we garner identity? There's a myriad of ways that the culture demands that we garner identity. I'm going to borrow a term from Andrew Bunt, who wrote a book on identity recently. The emphasis of the book is around trying to garner identity through sexuality. But he uses some uh, divisions that I think are helpful. He's like, who decides? Does the culture decide? Do I decide? Or does God decide? And if the culture decides my identity, if the culture, every culture globally, is constantly telling the people what to believe and what to do and how to garner their sense of value, there's a volatility there because everything is always evolving and changing all the time. And what we seem to have said was of utmost value and truth and importance 50 years ago isn't true today. And there's no reason to believe that the things that we hold up as the greatest values of our culture today would be true in 500 years. There's no basis to believe that as moderns we've cracked the code and the Enlightenment project worked and everything that we've set in motion in culture today is as it will always be. We have no guarantees of any of those things. There's a volatility when the culture is giving you your sense of identity because it's a shifting dance floor. And if we, give, if we give ourselves a sense of identity, that's also arguably terrifying because we fluctuate in and out of states of good and bad mental health. We fluctuate out of states of seasons of life that are good and difficult and challenging. We go through periods of deep sorrow and tremendous joy. There's a volatility if we need the world to be a mirror telling us who we are. Or if we have to look in our own mirror and tell ourselves who we are. It is volatile. But if God reveals the identity of the Father and the Son reveals to us our identity that we are God's children, there is a cosmic level of security and rest and resilience that flows from knowing we are a child of God. And not only that we are a child of God, but that he is on the other side of every decision that we ever make and he will work it out for the good of our salvation and for his glory. And that on Monday, 
whether a hell breaks loose or not, our lives are in the hands of God. Regardless of what the culture does or the markets do or the politicians do, we live with a sense of security and stability. It's hope like an anchor that navigates us through whatever Monday brings because we know who we are as the children of God. And therefore, these other things, our political ideologies, sexuality, these things do not define us. They're a part of who we are, but they're not at the core of who we are. It's much deeper than that as the children of God, as children who are in an ongoing, lifelong process of renewal that will one day, one day be restored to beauty and glory and peace in the resurrection. This is where everything is headed, the teleology of man according to God. And so there is a security and identity when we tether ourselves to this. So he gives Peter the new name, gives all of us, by extension, a new name. And our name is as Sally Lloyd-Jones would say, I am the one that God loves. We're his kids. And then we begin to grow into a new nature. And after this, of course, so you, see, you see Peter, of course, um, uh, does eventually begin to live into these things. But right after he has this you know, revelation, um, he still has this struggle. And we'll get to that in a second. So <clears throat> Jesus says he's going to then promise some indestructibility to his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. He uses the Greek term Hades, the realm of the dead. Jesus says, it's recorded in the Greek as Hades. The gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. We're a part, we're this little church, we're a small part of God's global, historical, multicultural church. Local churches can come under tremendous persecution or problems and, and clothes, or there's a, you know, they run out of money or the, they run out of good leadership and they fail and they close. Local churches close all the time. But the, the church, no. When local churches close, we're important in the sense that we gather to worship Jesus and we ought to serve our city. But let's not inflate our own self-importance as KW Redeemer. We're a part of what God is doing globally. And the church will not fail, has not failed, it will not fail. It's just a reallocation of the worshipers as they find other gatherings to gather and worship Christ alone. The church will not fail. In fact, historically speaking, in persecution, the church explodes the worse it gets. Which is why Canada and America, we really need a lot of missionaries coming here, preaching the actual gospel, drawing us back to the goodness of Jesus. Because there are, there are faithful churches in, in uh, our city and in Canada and in America, but not many. There aren't many Christians in North America, globally speaking. There's a few billion Christians globally. But there's only, we're not, there's only tens of millions in America, and there's only tens, you know, tens of millions in Canada. There's not many of us in Canada. There's only 40 million Canadians. How many Jesus worshipers are there? I don't know what that number is, but it's not many. There's only 350, 360 million Americans. How many Jesus-loving Americans? I mean, I'm, I don't mean political, weird, modern, evangelical Christianity. That I'm not talking about that. I mean, real loving Jesus, loving your neighbor you know, worshiping Christ and faithful to a scripture's Christianity. I don't know what that number is, but there's not many. But when you go across the water, you know there's billions of people over there? Billions? Look, I'm looking at the crowd. You guys are like, um, yeah. <laughs> billions. And there's a few billion Christians over there. And we need some of them to come over here and help us out. Because there is an indestructibility of the church. He says he's going to give... Peter, the keys of the kingdom, this metaphor of binding and loosing. What does this mean? Well, the binding and loosing, the, 
the interpretation properly of Christ throughout all of the Torah and the Old Testament scripture is decision making, keys to lock and unlock. It's the, that's what keys do, and they unlock and unlock things. It's language Jesus takes from Isaiah 22, this entrance into the kingdom, the kingdom being opened and closed. How do you open and close entry into the kingdom? It's the preaching of the gospel. He's giving the keys of the kingdom to his apostles to open up the way by preaching the goodness and the grace of Jesus, the goodness and the grace of God. There's a pivotal role of, of the gospel as the church preaches it. It's binding hearts to Christ, loosing hearts from small gods. There's a pivotal role we see in the apostles as they, they actually deny teaching that was opposed to the gospel. So then they're binding false teaching and they're only permitting solid teaching that coheres with the things that Jesus said. There's that binding and loosing going on and it gets extended to all of the apostles in Matthew 18, the binding and loosing over the church, the church government. It's the same thing. It's not a power play. It's not about church government uh, you know, going crazy with, with power and hubris. That happens all the time because humanity is, let's face it, a gong show. But you don't find those, na- those things in Jesus. You find those things in humanity. But Jesus gives this to the church because there are also tremendously faithful movements and always have been of churches that are caring for the poor and the sick. They're binding and loosing as they are, as they are um, you know, protecting people within the church from wayward ideology that's going to lead them into, you know, all sorts of problems in the soul. So he calls Peter the rock, and, and I'm going to borrow from Origen of Alexandria, one of the church fathers from Egypt. He says in, uh, of this passage, he says, every believer who is enlightened by the Father is also a rock because we're all living stones. And I just thought that was wonderful. And so even in the new identity, of course, Peter sins, right? Because right after all this glorious moment, he's like, Jesus, 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 come here, come here, come here. Come here. And then he rebukes him. Like you take a toddler aside to say, no, no, we don't say that. We don't say that. But you don't want to embarrass the toddler in front of everybody. So you take the toddler over to the corner and you say no. And that's what Peter's doing to Jesus here. That's where the word rebuke means. Jesus, no. By all means, no. We've got some political plans here. I don't know, but you may want to open your eyes up, Messiah. Okay, Rome lumeth. Right? So Peter's rebuking him. Uh, Jesus, totalitarianism, ever heard of it? Right. The modern church is like the rise of soft totalitarianism in Canada. Oh man, relax. Get on a plane and travel a little bit. Come on. Oh my goodness. Of course we live in a country that doesn't uh, share our ethics and worship Jesus, but relax church. The gates of hell aren't going to prevail against the church. They can legislate everything for the rest of your natural lifetime that is totally incongruent with your Christianity. And you can be a person of love, peace, generosity, and fire some winsome passion in the city. As you just love your neighbor and serve the city and seek the good of Babylon. It's all good. Christ has not fallen off the throne. We don't need to yell at anybody. So, Peter needs some mega alignment. We all need mega alignment. And that's the story of our Christian lives, isn't it? We come to faith in who Jesus is. He gives us a new identity, but then we struggle. We need, we need constant alignment. I know a lot about alignment and things out of alignment because I cheer for Ferrari. So I'm super well-versed in people who have no concept of good alignment. And when things are out of alignment, things wear out. And so as believers, we need to grow into this new identity by the power of the Spirit, which is the last thing as I close. The Spirit empowers our life from this new and true identity. And Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Sounds hard, doesn't it? Sounds grueling. 
take up your cross and follow me. Oh, you just imagine. Oh. <laughs> Can I just ask you a question? Do you think Jesus is coherent in his theology or is he all over the place? Because if you back up just a few chapters, those of you who worship at Redeemer will remember this. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Easy, not meaning it's a cinch. Easy in the Greek meaning fitted. Meaning if you will unite your life to me, your sense of identity and self is so fitted to your true humanity. It is easy and light because you are flourishing in God's ways. Flourishing to the degree that you put off your sin and put on the glory of your Savior. Flourishing in so much as you're like, I need to recalibrate and grow and, and be led. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Take up your cross and follow me. Wait, what? Is that a bait and switch? It's not a bait and switch. What Jesus is, is, is uh, calling the church into is absolutely uh, empowering because he's not confused. It's a life that is hard and joyous. Take up your cross and follow me. What are crosses for? They're, they're for dying on. Today it's jewelry, so it's so confusing, right? You would never wear like gallows, get a tattoo of gallows. But at the time, that's what this was. Jesus was like, yeah, take up your cross, this disgusting, abhorrent, culturally disgusting thing. And this is what the language is. And, but today it's jewelry, so we're like, oh, take up your cross. Jesus is, what he's saying is, what hill are you, what hills do you die on? Take those things up and follow me. Die on my hill. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. It's a new humanity. It's a new way of living. So yes, it's hard, but it's also joyous. And everything in your life that you enjoy, you had to put in the time and the hours. And it was hard, but you were enjoying it. And actually, even in the difficulty, there was joy. And of course, that comes with sacrifice, but it's all worth it. This is why you hear me quote Augustine all the time when he talks about gather, the church gathering and the spiritual disciplines as the gymnasium of the soul. It's where you work it out. Yes, it's hard, but it's also joyous. You know, Austin Matthews and Bo Bichette and Pascal Siakam, those three athletes from the, the, you know, the teams in Toronto... They had to make a lot of sacrifices when their friends were like eating McDonald's and watching movies. They were like working sacrifices. You know, hey, Austin, we're going to go out. We're going to get drunk out of our brains and we're going to do this. He's like, dude, I'm an athlete. I'm not doing that. So it was a whole life of sacrifice. Well, now he's in the NHL. He's enjoying himself. Hey, Bo, let's order a pizza Let's stay out all night and let's... He's like, guys, I can't do that. I'm trying to make AAA. I'm trying to make minors. I'm trying... So they're all taking up their respective crosses of their various things that they have, you know, centered their lives around. I'm not being negative about their character. I'm trying to just use this analogy of... Understand that it's just like sacrifice. You see, where there is no passion then there's only hard, dutiful sacrifice, and that's not what Jesus means. Where there is passion, the sacrifice is joyous worship. Taking up your cross is difficult in the sense that we're reordering our loves, but it is not a life of misery and remorse and sadness and discontent and inner turmoil that we've got to do our theology right if that's what we think taking up our cross means. No, it is a cause and effect. 
The reason why there's the suffering of the taking up the cross is because we live our lives in a sin-ravaged world. It's beautiful, but it's also broken. And until Christ comes to renew it, we wake up every day and we want to nudge, nudge the city in a more loving and caring and Christ-like direction. And then there's others that wake up and nudge it in a different direction. And that's why taking up our cross and following him means some suffering. It means sharing our ideas and sharing our faith in a climate that is incongruent with our ideas. But we are wise as serpents and harmless as doves in how we do that. And we choose our, we choose our spots. But we live with a kindness and with an un, unreserved, unapologetic boldness about the things that we believe. And so the Spirit empowers this life from this new identity. We're not observers of the culture and we're not the saviors of the culture, but we are these ministers in the culture who come and we live in the freedom. But we're not defined by our failure, our sin, our shortcomings. We're not defined by our material successes, our status, our clout, our vocations, our reputation. We're not defined by these things. We're defined by a cross. We are irreversibly loved. And so we are free to follow our glorious Savior. Let's pray.